You're tuning in to Missouri NEA Connects, a podcast to focus on all things Missouri education, from policy to practice, so that each of us can unite, inspire, and lead from where we are. We're happy you're here. As a society, are we addicting kids to social media and cell phones? Absolutely. It's been a problem. Couldn't agree more. A hundred percent. So welcome back to MNEA Connects. I'm Andy Slaughter, NEA Director for Missouri. I am joined by MNEA members Alicia Kleppel and Lindsay Weatherby. Together, we've been doing a study on the impact that social media and cell phones have on students in the classroom and how that impacts education. So you guys both agree that we are addicting kids to cell phones and social media. It is an addictive product. Every single study that I think I've seen shows that it very much can be not only a mental addiction, but it's also a physical addiction. The cell phone in your hand, 25% of the world's population is either physically or mentally addicted to social media, according to uh, one of the latest studies I've seen. 25%. That's more than smoking, by the way. So, And that's also more than almost every single hard drug. The only thing that I think has more addiction is caffeine. So... Explain why you think, why, why, why are we doing this to kids? Alicia? Well, as a parent myself, Andy, I think part of it comes to our own addiction. We're addicted to the cell phones, to being busy constantly. There's another email to send or whatever, checking our social media posts or making our next TikTok video. So then we hand the device to our children when they are babies. They are toddlers. And then we're using that as a pacifier to prevent a meltdown. So then it is with them when we're in the car, in the grocery store, at dinner, at the dinner table if we're cooking and eating at home. They're connected to their devices constantly and From what I can tell, most adults and something I still struggle with myself is we're addicted to them too. Yeah, I would definitely second that as a parent. I mean, it's gotten to the point where my son is in high school. He doesn't talk to friends. He uses Snapchat. Um, He doesn't know phone numbers. He doesn't even text. If it's not in Snapchat, it doesn't happen. And I think when I when I realized how much of a problem it really was, um, him and a group of friends wanted to go to dinner and they would have a bigger group. So they would have to call to make a reservation instead of doing it on the app. And they just decided like people in the group just decided, well, we're just not going to go because nobody wanted to call. So they just singled themselves out. So nobody had to make a phone call and talk to a human. Do you think like, I know for me, I know we, you t- we take kids out, you know, I've got kids too. So we take kids out and the second they start to squirm or do anything that, that to maybe disrupt the background noise of the restaurant or wherever you're at, they, they're handed a tablet like, hey, calm down. Like when we, when I was a kid, they just let us go. It was just loud and we were kids and we did the kid thing. But now we're so worried about like that kid distracting the adults. We give them a device and say, shh, be quiet. And Andy... I totally agree with you on that, but I also wonder when we were kids, how often did we actually go out to dinner? Um, And maybe we went out more than I think, but I feel like for most families, 
20, even, even 20 years ago, but definitely 30, 40 years ago, typically ate at home more. Mom or dad, somebody stayed at home. It was a one-parent working household, and one person was cooking and taking care of the family. And so we have a much different um, societal and family dynamics where when you have two busy working family parents or a single parent who is working, they come home and they might just want a minute to unwind. And what are they going to do? They might pick up their phone and play Bejeweled or some sort of game or check their social media. And it, when their child gets upset, it's the phone or device to placate that or to pacify them so that mommy or daddy can have that moment. Well, what about like our students in the classroom? Because I, I noticed this too, the, the ear pots, the, the constant noise in your head. What do we think about that? Because that's, I mean, we all had that, you know, we all had the Walkman back in the 90s. Everybody's got the Discman, like skipped every third beat, you know, but we still had it, but not to the extent that the phone allows them to have it today. And you can't even see it. I mean, how many times have I had a student who comes in with her little AirPods in and the hair is over them? So I don't see the AirPods until, you know, there's a hair flip or a student like they're allowed to wear hoods and hats. So they'll have their hood up. I don't know that they have on their AirPods. And then they're listening. Well, I can listen to music. I can listen to music and do the work. No, you can't. Like, you need to be focused on my lesson because I'm not giving the same lesson that I just gave because you refuse to take out your AirPods. So, I mean, I always do give the lesson, but I get really angry about it. So, But that goes back to, I mean, can you really hear and comprehend multiple different conversations or music and a conversation? I can see having music on if you were working independently. If I'm writing a 10-page paper like I was in college, music was very therapeutic for me. So when I have my students who are working independently, I'll even offer to play music for them. Yeah. But the difference is if they're supposed to be participating in the lesson, hearing the content, and they're not able to do that because they're also receiving input through their ear pods, it's just a catch-22, I guess. Um, So I can see where the kids advocate for it, but there has to be that fine balance between the two. And how much of that do you think is our fault? Because as you're saying that, like, we use that as an accommodation on students' IEPs. So how much is that of that is our fault that we're saying, oh, you can use this. And then they're like, oh, well, I can use this. And they're just choosing to use it at the inappropriate times, but we are, we are giving it to them as well. So that kind of goes into the next question I have. We all believe we're great multitaskers. We all believe that. Everybody believes that. We are, I can do my phone. I can do this. I can listen to my music. We all believe we're really, really good at that. But every study shows that to be false, that we're actually really bad at it. How much does the distraction of those cell phones and the constant following of social media apps, the music apps, switching to your YouTube, how much does that hurt kids' ability to learn and focus in the classroom? Alicia? You know, I think it goes back to that um, first podcast when I had shared that the idea of a student getting 250 notifications in one school day, if you're receiving a notification on your device, you stop your train of thought, whatever you're doing, you switch, you go check that out, whatever it was, uh, the dinner plans or what's happening after school, 
then you have to re-switch back to the lesson or the task at hand. And so then you have to remember what you were doing. And what we're noticing now is with students, something they're calling TikTok brain, is they can't focus for more than just short snippets of time. And we're expecting the students to do these long, prolonged assignments and activities when we have now allowed them or they have now become conditioned to need things very quickly and they need to be switching to the next activity quickly. So to prepare for this podcast, I was like, I am a great multitasker. I, it's what I do all day. It's why I'm good at my job. So I actually sat down <clears throat> And for one hour that I knew I was going to be working, and I'm sure I didn't track every single one, right? But I did actively try to track every single time that I was distracted or that I did something different and took me away from my work. 36 times, 36 times in an hour, I would get a social media thing or a text message or, you know, even just an email would pop up or something would pop up that I would like go to check in. Then I'd be like, oh, wait. And then that would put me on a spiral to, oh, I need to do this. And then I need to do this. And then I would go back to do my work. But I am an adult who has strategies in place and who is able to go back and do my work. And it was my independent work time. These kids don't have strategies. They're learning them. They're building them. But are they learning them? Are they building them? Are we giving them the tools that they need as a society to be able to build those strategies and get done what they need to get done. Well, Lindsay, I think you bring a good point. There's definitely digital citizenship lessons and curriculum out there that teachers and parents can use, but it requires time. And schools will say, yes, we're going to teach this. I know I've been handed curriculum and told to teach it, but then was given zero time in my day, and it's not a tested subject. So what is the first thing to fall off? It's the digital citizenship lessons. And I know they're important. I believe it. But without time to actually invest and do it well, the kids aren't getting taught that necessarily. And we're assuming somebody else is going to get it. I didn't get it this year. The next year teacher will do it, or they're going to get it at home. But when we keep you know, passing the buck, at some point, Somebody has to take responsibility and help these children learn the skills they need, or they're going to continue and graduate and have no coping skills or management skills of these devices. So one of the big questions, and I think the big question I want to come into tonight, we talked about, I think I talked about in the last episode, was the, the brain isn't ready for it. The brain, you're, you're, we're giving kids a device that does all these things that allows them connections across the entire world that has a camera on it. Their brain is not fully developed. One of the questions, I think one of the biggest surprises, honestly, for me, when I looked at the, our survey results, we asked the question, should there be an age restriction on cell phones and social media? There was a, a, a pretty even split. I would say it was definitely a, on the yes side for cell phones, but it was a little more 50, 50, but social media was by far in a way. Uh, there should be an age restriction. That was what we found out. 83% of our respondents said, yes, there should be an age restriction. And that was uh, that was a higher side on the high school and middle school teachers, the ones that see the problems with it on a daily basis. So 
we only had 6% of our uh, respondents say that there shouldn't be an age restriction. So what does that look like? Should we actually have an age restriction? Should there be somebody saying, you know what, maybe they don't need this at 12 or 13 or 10? And what does that look like? What does an age restriction look like? And do we need it? Alicia? I think this is super tricky and I might shock some people here. I do not think we need an age restriction for cell phones. I think we need to pass the responsibility on to society and families. We don't have landlines and pay phones and all the lines of communication we had years ago. So I can understand where some families may feel the need to have a cell phone for their child, but there are restrictions that can be put in place. I do feel strongly as a parent that we have to monitor everything that our children do. It's not about censoring them. We should be censoring them. We are the parent. We have to know what they are doing. It is our job to raise them. And we can't raise them and teach them right from wrong if we just give them freedom to do whatever they want and expect natural consequences to do all of our parenting for us. So what about, so what about social media? Should there be an age restriction on social media? We already have it. And the people who want around it, go around it. I mean, I've got eight-year-old kids trying to friend me on Facebook when the restriction's already 13. Again, it goes back to who's monitoring. Why is the eight-year-old able to bypass and lie to say that they are of age to have the account? So we're expecting tech companies, people who are making money off of us and our kids to parent them. And as society, we all have to agree and want this bad enough to make the hard decisions, to be brave. And it's going to take some parents saying, I'm not going to let my kid have Snapchat. I'm sorry, you're going to have to call or that parent can call me directly. Um, And that's a really unpopular opinion. And I'm picking on Snapchat here because I've got friends who um, their friends their kids only text and, and communicate via that. Um, but it could be Discord or any of the other apps that the kids are using or parents are using. But we have to be involved and in monitoring what they're doing as parents. So, Lindsay, what do you think? Should we have age restrictions on cell phones? And should we have age restrictions on social media? I know they're two different questions, but that's kind of what we're looking at as a, as an, as a possible solution here. So I I don't necessarily think that there needs to be an age restriction on cell phones, right? I mean, you can, you can put things in place. You can get your kid. They still make, my grandma has like a Nokia that does nothing but call me and text me. So you can get your child that like there, we had a cell phone for my son very young because we didn't have a home phone. We chose to get rid of that bill. We could get his phone for free. I think that's okay. I understand that from a financial and a family standpoint. Social media is a whole different beast. And I do think that there need to be restrictions because while I do agree with you, Alicia, that it is a societal issue, I don't know that I have faith in society to do what needs to be done. 
And so then I feel like the responsibility does go back to the people who are making money off of these kids and who are essentially using them for their gain. Like at what point do they have responsibility? And I never thought that these words would come out of my mouth, but I really like a bill that Josh Hawley has proposed. Um, <laughs> or cell phones. I know it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard when, when yeah. you like a bill that, you know, somebody who you didn't expect to come from. <laughs> right. Like I really like this bill that he has proposed and it is, it's not just saying you have to be 16, right? It's saying like you have to be 16 and you have to provide a birth certificate or a license or something that is truly not able to be gotten around. And I say that someone will find a way to get around it, right? Because how many people had fake IDs when they were 18? However, realistically, it is going to make a dent in things. An eight-year-old is not going to be able to have social media. So is it perfect and is it going to fix everything? No, but I do think that this is a good place to start. And I do think that maybe if we start this and we start putting these restrictions in and the people who, who are our legislators, who are we, who are elected officials, if they start actually doing something about it, maybe society will then jump on board and be like, perhaps I should not let my child have this. This is a problem. Um, so I just think it's going to have to be bigger than us to really make it different. So let's let's talk about that for a second. So there's a little history here. You go back to the early 1990s and the late 1980s. Uh, just take a guess what the age to buy cigarettes was. 16. 14. It was not. It was 14. Part of the reason why they changed the why they didn't want the law changed is because cigarette companies knew if you said 14, well, nobody's got an idea of 14. You just had to look 14. Well, 10-year-old can look 14 sometimes. They they didn't matter. They didn't want the law change because that means anybody kind of can buy cigarettes. Like the eight-year-olds can go buy cigarettes. Well, they changed the law in 1993 to make it 18. You had to have an ID. You had to card. Places couldn't sell to somebody who looked kind of 14-ish. And so and suddenly we saw this dramatic drop in the number of people that were smoking because they weren't getting 10-year-olds addicted to cigarettes anymore. And that's kind of the problem with the 13. Right now it's supposed to be 13, right? But social media companies know that you can't prove 13. There's no way to prove it. So they know that they can addict kids at a young age. What Lindsay talked about in Josh Holly's book, it's called the Mature Act. And it does require a photo ID or a birth certificate to prove the age of the person. And I also hate to say it, but I also like the law because it gives an opportunity for social media companies to take some responsibility and say, Hey, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to sell our addictive product. That is, I mean, by every stretch of the, every study that we've seen, I mean, logically, you know, it's hurting kids, mental health, that we're seeing all kinds of problems from it. It takes that and, and provides a physical, logical solution to it. Now I noticed the second he proposed the law, the second he proposed the law, I follow a lot of uh, lobbyists on Twitter, you know, social media, but a lot of these are Repub top Republican lobbyists. They immediately started attacking him. And what I knew from right then was that AT&T, Verizon, and all these other companies were definitely dead set against it because they think it's going to lose them money. 
Because you can't, because basically what's the point of giving your 14 year old a smartphone if it doesn't, if they can't get on social media. So there's no point not to give them the old AT&T brick where you can only text and, and dial. So what is, you know, I, I see, you know, the, I know there's a lot of people who say, well, that's, that's government restricting the parents' rights, uh, you know, that they're to get social media for their kids or whatever. But at some point, I think we have to acknowledge that they are selling an addictive product that is harming kids. And for me, making some kind of age restriction makes some sense for, for social media, not so much for cell phones, because I think Alicia had a good point, was that most people don't have landlines anymore. I, you can't call kids at their house. They have to have something, but I am perfectly fine with that being the 2003 AT&T birth phone. And I think 16 is a perfectly you know, good age to up the restriction. Like you mentioned, there is more opportunity to determine that they really are of age. 16, our prefrontal cortex still is not fully developed. They're still going to have um, issues with their neural pathways, not making all the connections that they need to be making. So I still see that it's not going to fix everything. Again, it's not going to be this perfect, the government saved us. They put in this ban or they've made this restriction. Now I can just trust that my kids are fine. They're safe. We still have to make sure that we are monitoring and being brave because it's the 16-year-olds that are having the anxiety. It's not just the little ones. So I I 100% agree that we could be doing more, and Holly's bill is shockingly um, pro-education and friendly just in general, it seems like, you know. But um, I, I do think we need to do more as society. And on that note, uh, we thank you for listening to MNEA Connects. We'll be back hopefully with some more on this topic later. But we appreciate you guys listening and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much. And yet again, have a great, lovely week.